Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey everyone, welcome back to the first episode of Space to Grow. This is Chris Blackerby and I'm here with Charity Whedon again. Hello. So uh, we just had an awesome conversation with Emily Calandrelli. She is a uh, uh, does so much stuff in in space overall and and science and space communication. She's MIT engineering grad, uh, but has a background not just in the technical but on the policy side as well. She's got several different TV shows. She's written books, uh, and and she's just out there trying to talk about uh, what we need to know in terms of space and science. And so we thought she'd be a a great first guest for us. So I uh, hope you enjoy this first episode of Space to Grow. Emily, welcome to Space to Grow. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you. And with all of your academic and professional credentials, you can now add one more. You are the inaugural guest <laughs> on Space to Grow. I am honored. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, first, I want to just kind of start with uh, your background and uh, inspirations. Uh, you know, you're an engineer, you're an author. You're a speaker, you're a TV host, science communicator. As, as you look back on all these and your beginnings in the field, what or who inspired you to make these key decisions that have brought you here today? Yeah, it's definitely been a wild ride because I'm doing something that I definitely did not set out to do when I was studying uh, mechanical and aerospace engineering undergrad. Um, but I would say my path really started to change when I got to MIT for grad school and I learned about their technology and policy program. And that was something that I didn't know about when I first got there. I was just studying aeronautics and astronautics when I first got there. And then I learned about that program. And that program was all about looking at science and technology from a different lens, from a more policy framework lens, where you're not just learning about how the technology works, but you are asking the questions about, is this technology ethical? Uh, should we be investing in this type of technology? What is the government's role in this technology? How does it interface with the public? Um, how do we keep the public safe? All of these things that I thought were just very fascinating, nuanced questions. And that gave me a different framework of thinking about science and technology in general. And so learning about that from that perspective, that kind of changed my career path to one that was more policy driven and more communications driven. Um, and when I left MIT, I was definitely planning on going to work somewhere like maybe the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, in DC. But while I was looking for a job, I got a call from a production company that was like, would you like to be the host of a TV show about space? And I thought that that sounded fun. And so I said yes, <laughs> thinking, you know, if this goes terribly wrong, if this goes sideways, I have lots of degrees to fall back on and I think I'll probably be okay. Um, but here we are, like six seasons later, and I've started to make a career out of that. Wow, that's so cool. That's amazing. And, and did you, yeah. did you, were you inspired like at a, at a young age too? Was this something like to get into engineering and science? Was it something as a, as in, from childhood that you were interested in? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. For me, I am a bit unique. I think from some of my peers that I've encountered, in that I didn't want to be a scientist or an engineer when I was younger. I didn't know any scientists or engineers, so that that option, that dream, wasn't really available. To available to me. I'm the first person in my family to pursue a degree in STEM. And so for me, I joined 
engineering as an undergrad um, for really practical reasons. I, um, as a high school senior, I looked up all the majors one could major in in college and I looked at their starting salaries and I saw that across the board, uh, engineers made pretty good money. <laughs> and I was like, the next four years of my life are gonna suck, uh, but I'm going to end up with a good job. And so I really reluctantly joined this field. But then when I got into it, I learned more about NASA. I learned more about the opportunities that students could have. I learned about internships and fellowships and scholarships and research and all of these wonderful things that you can do as not just an engineering student, but an aerospace engineering student. And so I just I became enamored with the whole process, with the space industry, with studying aerospace engineering, with learning about all of all the things that NASA was working on. And so I really reluctantly joined. But then when I was there, I was like, oh, no, this is actually great. I love this. Emily, you make a great point there you know, starting out engineering. And, and that was pretty much the thing that was in front of you if you you know wanted to go into science or space and things like that. But what about others out there that are not scientifically inclined or engineering inclined? Um, how do you respond to those that want to get into scientific and space fields, uh, but they want to go through a policy route or a business route? Uh, how do you speak about the potentials for everyone and all our talents to get into a career in science or space? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. The space industry, in order to flourish, it needs so many different people with different talents. Um, and that can be things like uh, the business side, the economic side, the policy side, the communication side, the marketing side, the artwork side. There's so many different facets of people who um, make the space industry really wonderful. And we need so many different talents to do that. And there's examples of people in the space, like Lori Garver, for example, I believe has like an economics background. And um, there's different programs at the grad level that allow you to embrace the space side. So if you are really excited about one of these non-STEM, quote STEM sides um, in undergrad, that's fine. If you're excited about the space industry, there's other ways to apply those same skill sets to the space industry later on. There's, you know, the International Space University. There's different science and technology programs at George Washington University and at MIT, where you can combine both of those interests together. And do you see like the 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 students you work with? Uh, you know, you've been doing this now um, on at various uh, platforms. Uh, for the last 10 years, basically. Uh, do you see that there's a, an, an interest growing in, in space generally across all of these disciplines? I mean, is, are there people that are starting to understand that, wow, I, I could be a policy person and get into space or a lawyer or anything, and as well as an interest in engineering growing? I, I mean, personally, I do in my little bubble. I know that the industry as a whole is certainly having um, an issue with finding younger talent. And so I think as a whole, this is still somewhat of a problem. Um, but like in my little bubble, I see people like uh, Kelly Giardi, who has this wonderful background in, um, I want to say public relations and fashion, and she's combined that interest into the space industry. And so she's someone who's showing others that you don't need to have a STEM background to work in this field. And she is certainly inspiring other people to work in this field as well. And so in my little bubble, I see it, but I know as a whole, there's still a lot of work to do. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, you know, Astroscale, we focus on sustainable space future. Um, you know, all of it is 
technology, policy, business, and social benefit. And, and it, it's supported by storytelling. It's supported by making sure there's awareness of the issue of space sustainability and long-term sustainability of space. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, what are the most important aspects of storytelling, and you are an expert at this, <laughs> to inform the public and policymakers? What really resonates with the public when we're trying to tell them about this important issue? For me, I always try to think of the human side of storytelling, because that's going to be the thing that people most relate to. Um, and by that, I mean, like, what are what are the real human emotions that are attached to this? What is the personal side of this? What makes the person who is telling the story, uh, what part of them is the most salient quality in terms of um, how the story affects them? Because anybody can read about stuff that's going on in the space industry online, on Wikipedia, whatever. But storytelling kind of speaks to our human nature. And I think that when in different individuals are trying to tell the story, something that can make their story really powerful is when they're not afraid to put their own personality into it, when they're not afraid to show their human side, what part of this technology, what part of the story affects them, what makes them really excited, what makes them scared, what makes them passionate about working on it. Um, and so when I talk to people about how to be a good presenter, um, I encourage them to make whatever they're talking about unique to them. How are they going to tell the story differently than than somebody else? Man, that's so key, isn't it? I mean, just to personalize it. And it's something we do talk about. And uh, it is tough. I mean, with the issue that we're trying to solve is uh, it's basically an environmental problem in space. And, uh, and just like messaging environmental issues uh, terrestrially is, is difficult to see like the long-term negative impact, it's similar. It's similar in space is, uh, is one of the things that we have to, have to deal with. And, 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 and you, know, you, you mentioned the, your background getting into engineering was kind of an economic one. It's, it becomes down to that, that issue as well. So it's, a, it's a making it personal and making it uh, an economic impact for, for those companies. Yes. Yes. And, and talking about the issue in a way that relates to the audience that you're trying to influence. Um, for me, you can you can frame an argument in terms of something that the person you're talking to cares about, not what you think they should care about. It's just, as you said, some people care more about the economic side of things. Some people care more about the environmental side of things. Some people care more about the, maybe like the national defense aspect of it. And whoever you're talking to is going to likely fit in one of those boxes. And knowing that ahead of time can really make you uh, frame your argument in the most effective way. Yeah, I've I've often heard the term satellites don't have mothers, and that's why it's hard to connect. <laughs> um, and it's, but satellite users do. People who use yeah, satellite data all have mothers. Yeah, and, <laughs> and fathers. And tracking healthcare. You know, we all have family we care about. Um, so yeah, speaking of like we were living in a pandemic, and our kids aren't in school. Work is relegated to Zoom calls like every single day. <laughs> Or even putting oneself in danger if you're in the service, healthcare, first responder community. Um, I, I can tell you the space industry is equally affected, um, both economically, but the ability to, for us to, to move forward um, is, is affected as well. Uh, Emily, you're, you're really good at making the point of the value of science literacy. How 
what do you want to say about science literacy in this day and age uh, while we're in a pandemic, how to get through this difficult time? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because as a science communicator, this pandemic um, points out a really, really tough problem when it comes to science communication and that it is already an interesting challenge taking something that is super complicated and finding a simple, creative way to explain it to people so that they understand. That's one challenge. A new and different challenge is taking something in the scientific world that's a bit uncertain, that we don't quite know all there is to know just yet, and communicating that uncertainty to a public who wants a straight answer. And that has proven to be very, very difficult. And um, it, it, it's something that I think we're all learning as we go, uh, both on the communication side and on the public side. Think about, you know, masks. The, in the beginning, um, the sort of understanding of masks was that um, only an N95 mask would be useful. If you're not wearing an N95 mask, then there's no point in wearing a mask. Uh, and then we learned that the PPE is in limited supply. And so nobody, if you're not uh, in the healthcare industry, should be ordering um, N95 masks. And then later we learned that actually wearing masks is, is helpful for both yourself and to protect others from you. And so people who are in the public, they've been dragged along through this communication cycle, and it is understandably very confusing and very frustrating. And so I think that we are all learning as we go um, on in terms of like how to communicate these uncertain things. Um, science literacy, I find to be incredibly important um, as a consumer of knowledge, because there is so much information out there today and so much false information out there today. And so scientific literacy to me just means being very critical about what you're learning and who you're learning it from. Um, and just trying to be critical about all of the news that comes your way and making sure you're getting it from the right sources. Yeah. The, the, Difficult path is is always the difficult answer is always hard. Yeah, <laughs> people don't don't want to dive down that. Yeah, it's hard. Well, and and one of the one of the ways to to communicate these things, um, you know, speaking of this combination of of trying to increase science literacy and 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 tell the the complicated story and also to to communicate to message things. Um, I think you've you've heard this question a lot, but uh, your presentation on space exploration from a few years ago, the space exploration is the worst one. I thought it was such a unique way to get that message across. Uh, how how was that received generally, and and what do you think about about messaging these difficult topics? Is the better way to just come out and say it like like direct, or in that kind of uh, cheeky way that you did it on that on that uh, on that presentation? Yeah. So for those of uh, anyone listening who hasn't watched it, uh, Space Exploration is the Worst is just my um, very overly sarcastic TEDx talk where I go through some of the um, possible arguments that people would say for why uh, we shouldn't be spending money um, on the space program or on space-based technology, and then kind of um, shut them down one by one. Um, but the entire thing is a very sarcastic talk, and I think that that rubs some people the wrong way. And so if you look at the like count on YouTube, uh, it is a very controversial talk. But I will say that it has something like 700,000 views or something ridiculous. It's one of my most viewed 
things I've ever done. Um, and the reasoning behind why I went with such a unique style of uh, storytelling was because I knew that if I were to write a TEDx talk that was like the top 10 reasons it's worthwhile to invest in space exploration, um, I don't think anybody would watch that. I think the people who already agree that space exploration is valuable uh, are not inclined to watch something like that. I think people who already think that NASA and other space related things are a waste of money are not likely to watch a top 10 reasons space is awesome talk. Uh, and so the goal was really to just get as many people as possible to watch something that would hopefully show them all of the valuable ways we are investing in um, space-based technology. And I think that, that it, it, it definitely served that purpose, but it's quite a controversial talk. <laughs> I think it was great. And so, Charity, I think we need to make a note. So our next presentation should be why we shouldn't care about orbital environment or yes. let's let's litter, let's let's litter space. Something like that? Talk talk about a hook. I would I would listen to that. <laughs> and I, yeah, I am only half kidding, right? I mean that's a, that's a great inspiration. We can we can steal your idea, Emily. Is that okay? One of the one of the things that we also saw your uh the exploration outer space episode on on asteroids and, and space debris and um, so I, I know you you have a recognition of uh, of the problem and what we're trying to do. You know, it's so hard dealing with these low probability, high impact events. Um, and I, I referenced the, the climate change and, and terrestrial environmental issues. And for space debris, it, it's an awareness problem, uh, but then it's an action problem. I mean, how do we continue to bring attention to this issue uh, and increase understanding? of this issue of of space debris and and again emphasizing the fact that yeah sure it's unlikely that that there's going to be this uh this uh, this accident in space that completely shuts down all satellite communication but if it happens it's a big deal i mean it, we we sometimes equate it to the covid the covid issue where uh, back in late 2019, there were only a few people really talking about a pandemic, and now we're all talking about it. And I think it's the same thing with um, with space debris. But uh, you know, just thinking about how we can get people to buy into it and and take action on it is is a tough one for us. And yeah, know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. I mean, definitely. And I, I have thought about it a little bit. I, I've spoken with Danielle Wood um, over at the MIT Media Lab with Space Enabled. And I know that her team, I believe, was working on something that was similar to the LEED certification in architecture, uh, but for responsible um, space-based assets. Um, and that seems like a really good idea because it feels like this is something that would add cost to a business. And if there's no incentive on the business side to add that cost, what is going to pressure them? Uh, to be responsible. And it feels like either public shame <laughs> is uh, one avenue, but also just pressuring, um, you know, government officials to make, to take this seriously and make regulations to sort of um, push different businesses and companies to do the right thing. Yeah, it's, it's multi-pronged, isn't it? And, and we, um, it, that, that whole idea of public shame, yeah, that's the peer pressure aspect is big. Uh, we work closely with Danielle on that uh, space sustainability rating is what mm, um, yes. uh, yeah, you were referring to. And so, uh, yeah, we, we have to hit it from a, a variety of angles. And nothing motivates industry more than the threat of regulation. I find that 
there is a scramble for best practices right now, and industry is it's actually quite responsive, and they see the issue that is impending. Um, and A, they've, they have invested billions of dollars that they don't want to lose, for one. So there's an economic reason, but uh, also they see governments starting to think about, well, if we're ultimately liable from the UN treaty, um, maybe we need to lay down some more rules here. And so I think everyone's taking action, but it's, it's not quite there yet. The, the pace of innovation is just so fast and regulation just can't catch up. That's true. And this is one thing that you don't really want to get ahead of you because once it's a problem, it's sort of hard to make it no longer a problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question. Um, and, and so as we, uh, as we continue thinking about this, uh, this information overload that we all have on so many of these issues, what, what do you think about this uh, proliferation of, of media sources? Is, is this making it uh, easier to advance science and space literacy or, or maybe more difficult? Because as we were talking earlier, all of the, the different easy answers that are out there, uh, people cling on to those, but that's on the negative side. But on the positive side, there's so many platforms and, and just you yourself doing the the um, Bill Nye Saves the World show, the Exploration Outer Space, the uh, Emily's Wonder Lab, all of that. You have so many platforms that you can reach people. Uh, and there's a positive, but then then there's a other side to that coin. How do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I do think there are, with the increase in media access, I think there is uh, larger cons and also larger pros. Um, so like you said, there's just, there is this wave of, information coming every which way. I have uh, my mom sending me things from Facebook that she's seen that I'm like, mom, please stop sending me <laughs> memes from Facebook that you oh, saw dear. from our aunt and uncle. Um, and, but on the other hand, I see this wave of science communicators who are using the science that they're learning in the lab, uh, wherever they're working um, and communicating that through their own, uh, to the people who follow them. And so I, I see it both ways because I love that this science communicator's role is becoming more pronounced. It's, it's becoming this field that people recognize. Um, and I love to see that, but you know, uh, on the other side of that coin is just uh, tons of misinformation that's coming every which way. And so it's, it's a constant battle and I don't really know the right answer as to how to, fix that. Um, I think these large scale media platforms don't want to be seen as news agencies. And so they don't want to regulate the information that comes out there. And um, that becomes problematic from the consumer side. And so I think that we all have to be very vigilant. And I think that last point is it. We just keep getting keep getting the good content out there. I mean, my kids love Emily's Wonder Lab. I know charities do as well. Let's let's get that out there. And then and that's part of the part of the impetus for us doing this is just to find whatever sources we can. I mean, we recognize that there's this proliferation of media. Let's just let's let's get our voices out there. And that's yeah. a, that I think I think that's what we have to do. Make the good media drown out the bad. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Kids are so adaptable these days and and <laughs> they've got their their hands in all sorts of social media and, and online kind of stuff, especially, you know, doing school online. Um, and, and speaking of Emily's uh, Wonder Lab, yes, love the show. And I just want to know what gets kids hooked on science? What do you think, um, you know, is 
is most important for the kids to understand the scientific principles, but what reaches them the most? What gets them hooked there, Emily? Yeah. So when we were doing Emily's Wonder Lab, um, for us, it was really important to do a few different things. For one, um, it was really important to me that I never talked down to the kids, that I always treated them as little curious scientists. And um, I never really, I, I didn't oversimplify anything that we were talking about. I didn't shy away from the science. Um, and the other thing was to ask the kids questions along the way, not just to show them something and say, here's the science behind it, memorize it, take this with you, but rather to show them something, ask them to make a guess as to what was going to happen next. And now all of a sudden they're invested. It feels very game-like because now they've all made guesses and now they want to see who wins. And then after they see what happens, then we analyze what we saw and why we saw that. And so they're way more engaged that way and they feel like they're part of the process. Um, and especially, I think that we can be very smart about the types of things that we show. I, I know for our show, we did um, experiments that were colorful or had big reactions. And then as I'm doing that, I, I'm being authentic in my excitement for this. I'm not being like, oh, I, I know how this is going to work. So I'm not I'm not interested in what the reaction is. Like I'm screaming with them. I'm laughing with them. I'm getting messy with them. All of these things. I'm not, I'm showing them that it's cool for adults to be excited about this too. So mm. I think encouraging them to ask questions, to show them that scientific process of ask a question, make a hypothesis, do an experiment, uh, look at your observations and all of these things, I, I think gets them engaged, not talking down to them, choosing things that are fun and colorful and explosive. <laughs> that always helps. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And that's, I mean, those are the ones that, that hit. I mean, at this age, I have a 10 and an eight-year-old and they, they just love that stuff. But they, you know, it's, it's, as with any good teaching, it's a trick. They don't realize they're learning yes. <laughs> when they're having fun. That's the, that's the thing that like with everything I, I do, I want to make something that's so engaging that the people who are watching or reading don't realize that they're learning something along the way. And so along those lines, what, what then do you think are some of the most important scientific principles, not just about space, but generally that, that you think the, the public you know, from from the little public of the kids all the way up to adults needs to know and understand. And why do you why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, there's that quote that um, like the something that is more extreme requires more extreme evidence. And so something I, I don't know exactly what the quote is, but it's something like that. You know, you um, what is it? Big, big something. Uh, I don't know. I, I heard it come I, up. I again. know the one I, you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't I remember like, the, <laughs> the exact Google it, everybody. Yes. Just Google Google some of those keywords and you'll find it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's really like, I, I think <clears throat> that just holds so true to every piece of news that comes out. Like when the um, news about phosphine and Venus's atmosphere came out, um, uh, so many people rushed to the assumption that there's aliens on Venus. And uh, I think that that held true where you're, you, you see you see something that sounds so extreme. Um, you need to make sure that there's a lot of extreme evidence to uh, back up that statement. And I think with all of these things that we see on Facebook, there's so many new articles that come out that's like, 
um, something is good for you, something is bad for you, this cures cancer, all of these things. When If you hear something and it, it, there's like a red flag that pops up, then um, that red flag in your head is giving you a sign that you need to look into who is telling you this and how much evidence there is of that thing that they're telling you. And just being super critical of um, statements that sound really outlandish is something that I think we should carry through to every single thing that we see and, and that we read. Mm. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I believe that's there that. it is. I don't know. How who did said you think it, of that, Charity? I don't know who said it. I should. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so, so many great scientific principles that you're showing on Emily, Emily's Wonder Lab. What's next? There's so many out there. I'm sure there's 20 ideas that got dropped on the floor. Uh, what do you think is next uh, to, for kids to learn? on the show. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and I have lots of ideas on, in terms of like science shows for adults that I have been pitching over the years Ooh, that that's a great have idea. been unsuccessful thus far. Um, one in particular that I really love, and I would just, I would love to get it out there, is a show about climate change um, that talks about climate change from the human angle, where instead of talking about the big science behind climate change. Uh, we talk about the personal stories uh, right in our backyard that are already happening wow. today. Um, things like in Maine, there are lobster wars happening because lobsters are moving farther north to find colder waters in Canada. And there's this really interesting lobster war happening over there. Wineries are having to adapt to different grapes that'll grow in hotter, drier environments. Um, ski resorts are making uh, more artificial snow. Um, there's like this county in, in Texas that is one of the most conservative counties in the state, except for one issue, and that's climate change. Because these uh, people are who are, um, I believe they herd cattle, they have seen the days become hotter and longer and more dangerous to operate. It's hurting their business, it's hurting their bottom line. And there's all of these stories right here at home, right here in the United States where People everywhere are already dealing with the impacts of climate change. And I think that side of things is is just not something we hear all the time. When we think about climate change, we hear we think of this like doom and gloom thing that's happening in like 10, 15, 20, perpetually the future from now. Um, and I, I would love to do a show about the thing that the stuff that people are dealing with right now. Um, with Emily's Wonder Lab, I have like a, a Rolodex of experiments that I'd love to do for mm -hmm. seasons two, three, four, five, six, seven. So hopefully Netflix will call and renew. So that was actually the question. So there's going to be a season two, three, four, five, six, seven? I hope so. We're still waiting on the call. <laughs> we are still waiting on the call. But uh, the hope, I mean, I, I am ready whenever they do call. So here's hoping. Yeah. And I love the idea of that uh, that science show for adults and the climate, the anecdotal stories of climate change uh, mixed with the statistical. Yeah. Showing both side by side on something like that uh, throughout the, the show, I think would just hit all of the right notes. That that would be great. Yeah. Um, and I think it, like really importantly, I think it would reach a different audience than climate uh, stories usually do. Because um, when you do sort of like an Anthony Bourdain style of storytelling where you're in the field and you're just showing the human side of, um, you know, instead of showing 
human stories through the lens of food, like he did, it would be showing human stories through the lens of climate change. And I just think it makes it more personal and less mm -hmm. like, uh, I don't know, the, less what we've seen in the past, where I think a lot of the climate shows that I've seen on science television is um, kind of already is designed to be seen by people who already care about climate change. But to create real impact, I think, to create real change, we really need to move the needle in the moderate group of people who are like, oh, I've heard of climate change, but I don't know that I care that much about it. I want to reach those people and start to convince those people to care more about this issue. Absolutely. Well, if there's anything that I've learned is, you know, have a healthy dose of skepticism, care about, you know, what's happening today. And uh, we're in the middle of it, aren't we? Climate change and um, that's, that's, you know, an important issue for all of us to understand and, and get the facts on. Uh, Emily, we wanted to try something with our podcast, uh, guests and do something a little fun, uh, for a question at the end. So are you game? I'm game. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. First, 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 first <laughs> guinea pig. This is it. Let's see if it works. <laughs> so, um, as you know, we're a space future focused podcast. What are your three predictions about what the space ecosystem is going to like 15 years from now? That's not too far away, 2035. What do you think things are going to be like up in space in 15 years? Yeah, up in space in 15 years. I mean, I think by then we will have a healthy space tourism uh, economy. Um, I am really hopeful for that. I think that would be really fun. Are you going to um, sign up? Oh my gosh. If <laughs> my goal is to, you know, gain enough of a following on social media that somebody sponsors my trip <laughs> so that I don't have to save, what is it? $250,000. I don't have that. So we'll, mm -hmm. uh, we'll hold out hopes for a paid sponsorship on Virgin Galactic. Well, you've done pretty well so far on that, getting the vomit comet ride and the That's trips right. around hey, the world and stuff. So I'm working my way up. hope. <laughs> <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, and, you know, I, I think that we will have um, the beginnings of a moon base. I would love mm. to think that that is, um, that is somewhere in the future. And I think that we're going to see more of um, kind of like piggybacking off of the tourism thing. I think we're going to see more like movies and TV shows and reality shows, maybe just a handful of them, but I think we're going to see more of that type of um, part of the economy uh, playing off the space tourism industry. I would love to see um, different uh, like reality shows or movies and stuff. And we, we've heard whispers of this, um, like Tom Cruise has been, uh, they've been saying that Tom Cruise is going to film in space. And I, I think that that's going to happen. I think we're going to see more of like that commercial arm of the International Space Station be leveraged for, for some really creative things. Wow. You heard it, heard it here first. That's great. I love those <laughs> predictions. Those are realistic. Um, and, and I can see them actually coming to fruition. Yeah. Because 15 years, you, like you said, that's, I mean, in the, in the grant, in the scheme of, of space industry politics, I, I think that feel it's, it's going to feel a lot shorter. <laughs> so can you tell us your schedule now in 2035? Can we just book the, the follow-up podcast to see if everything has come true? Can you tell us if you're free? That's oh, right. Yeah. Years, I'm right? free yeah. on uh, okay. September 2nd. Uh, Perfect. Perfect. On, 
on the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm, I want to ask the other question too, Charity. Yeah, yeah. Let's we, we we have a second one, Emily. And Go yeah, is that all right? If we yeah. get one more oh, last yeah. one for you, all right. So this one, um, putting on the spot. Uh, I assume you um, you're a space movie TV show fan, or you've asked, you've seen your fair share. Um, if you could be a character from any space movie or TV show, which character would it be and why? Oh my gosh. I mean, I know it's not actually Jill Tarter and I forget her name in contact, but the Jill Tarter Ah. character in contact, probably. Um, I just always felt like that. She was just such a wonderful human in real life. And I loved her depiction in contact. And uh, yeah, I think, I think the Jill Tarter character in contact. That's such an awesome oh, wow. movie and the classic too. Yeah, 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 I love it. Very cool. Well, um, this has been really fun. Uh, what a great first episode! It's been so nice to have you on, Emily. And, and you know, uh, Charity, we don't have a tagline for ending our show. Do you think no. we can use like maybe like "Stay curious and keep exploring"? Would that be a good one? <laughs> you guys can have that one. I've heard is, that one so that much right? that I need someone else to start saying it. My my kids literally sing it around the house. The song. It's an earworm of a of a oh, hook. Wow. So that's what we need. That's great. <laughs> Um, so hey thanks again Emily yeah it's been great to have you and uh, and thanks everyone for joining Uh, that was again Emily Calentrella you can catch her on a lot of places but uh, on on Netflix uh, and uh, Emily's Wonder Lab and uh, check out the Adelaide books as well so thanks everybody thank you